Waterlog. This is Dan Janoffi. And Howard Marlowe. Thanks for tuning in today. Uh, thanks again, as always, to Coastal News Today and the American Shoreline Podcast for hosting us. Today we'll bring you news on the disaster supplemental, a $1 trillion infrastructure bill Democrats plan to push, and the just release Word at 18 guidance, and a bit more. But first, uh, we hope you're going to check our newly updated Guide to the Corps. It's on our Waterlog website, www.waterlog.net. Our site is loaded with a lot of useful information about the Corps and its programs and processes, but also a lot of other information about coasts, including economics, sediment management, tips on making your voice heard in Congress, and the list really goes on. If you have a request for something you'd like to see on our site, please shoot us a note at howard at waterlog.net. Thanks, we would really appreciate your feedback. Let's go ahead and get started. So last time we reported that Rep. Nita Lowy, Chair of the House Appropriations Committee, had introduced a new House version of a disaster supplemental appropriations bill. Now this version is closer to the Senate version of the bill, but with a bit more assistance from Puerto Rico than the President feels is merited. So Howard, would you mind talking a little bit about what's in the supplemental for core water resource projects? Well, basically, uh, the, first the focus is on hurricanes Florence, Irma, and Michael, and repairing damages that uh, resulted from that. $740 million for projects is authorized, for projects that are authorized but not yet constructed. Now here's the deal about this one. You don't even have to be authorized yet. You can be authorized after this new supplemental bill becomes law. The money is 100% federal. $45 million also of the total has to go, is set aside for ecosystem restoration projects that have incidental flood risk management benefits in areas impacted by Irma and Maria, those two specifically. Another $25 million is set aside for continuing authorities programs, projects, and a separate $45 million for studies, whether they're already authorized or authorized after the disaster bill is passed. That doesn't seem to be limited to those specific areas where Florence, Irma, and Michael are impacted, but we'll have to see what happens about that. Now, also, there's almost $1 billion for operations and maintenance. Primarily, that's navigation dredging. Again, we assume that it's going to be areas hit by Florence, Irma, and Michael, but the language doesn't say that. Plus, we're not done yet, FCC money. It's emergency money, $510 million to prepare for flood, hurricane, and other natural disasters as well as to respond to disasters. That seems to offer another opportunity for some creative thinking about possibly preparing for disasters. That's not something we do a heck of a lot of in this country. Crazy idea, isn't it? Yeah, no, it's just <laughs> wicked. So, you know, we're throwing money at projects post-storm, and I know we've just got this pre-disaster possibility here, but we all of this money is being thrown post-storm, and now what happens? Let's look at an example. Suppose you get a project that uh, the Corps says, we'll give you $10 million for repairing damage to this project, and it turns out that you need $12 million. Because basically, the $10 million that they said that they allocated was based on estimates 
uh, well, let's say coastal projects require dredge mobilization. And when you have a lot of projects coming at the same time, dredge mobilization costs go up. The more demand is the capitalist system in this country. So the more demand, the higher the price. So you have to go through what I call a murder board, but I think they call it a change board. And that's three people at headquarters. So the district has to be willing to go through a request, sending up the division, up to headquarters, where if the final decision is that you don't get, you, you don't deserve to get your additional $2 million, you either get less of a project or you get no project at all and they take that $10 million and use it somewhere else. So this is not something that has happened before, but it is happening now actually with the current supplemental that is the one that's already out there, not this one that we're talking about. So they're going to be using this now for here on on disasters. They've never done that before. So thought I'd mention that. And, so in other uh, words, what you thought you might get. You might have zero. <laughs> or it might not actually work at all, you know. Uh, let's, I want to take a step back and, and talk about that 25 million set aside for CAP projects. Now, if you don't know what CAP projects are, those are the continuing authorities programs. And these are for smaller projects that don't necessarily, or that don't require congressional authorization and, and the large process that's, in, that's involved with things like beach nourishment projects. Now, to our listeners, CAP projects should mean opportunity. That's $25 million for you and your community uh, to get involved with the Corps for things like planning assistance, regional sediment management, ecosystem restoration. So when you hear $25 million is available, uh, try and take advantage of that in your community if you have that, if you have that possibility. And uh, you know, if you need more information about what programs are available under CAP, we have it on the Waterlog website. Just take a look for it. So in addition to a multi-billion dollar supplemental, Nancy Pelosi wants an infrastructure bill that is, quote, at least one trillion, in her words. She would like it to be closer to two trillion. It's such an enormous pot of money, what, uh, rebuild traditional infrastructure uh, nationwide for inland roads, bridges, and schools. Uh, but she also focused on upgrading outdated water systems and old roads that need to be updated for sea level rise and electric driverless vehicles. The House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee will take the lead on it, but will also have uh, oversight from committees such as Energy and Commerce, Natural Resources, and the Select Committee on the Climate Crisis. We'll be tracking the proposal for you. Uh, its details will take shape uh, in the next few weeks, um, but our, our focus will be on how much coastal infrastructure is, is included in the bill. It'll hopefully reduce some of the nearly $1 trillion backlog of construction projects in the Corps of Engineers portfolio, the main question people are going to be asking is, how are we going to fund a $1 trillion bill? Uh, Pelosi noted that there would be different ways to raise revenue, such as gas taxes and carbon taxes, uh, but we're not quite sure about that yet. Trump, Schumer, and Pelosi will meet next week to discuss infrastructure, and a Members' Day hearing will be held on May 1st at 10 a.m. if you guys want to tune into that. I think that's the House uh, Transportation and Infrastructure Committee. Mm -hmm. Uh, Howard, do you have any predictions about a congressional infrastructure package? Yeah, my crystal ball is uh, at, at least seeing somewhat clearly. Uh, I really don't see the, the issue here is money, once again. And you have to find this. Now, oddly enough, once again, we will do something post-disaster. We ought to look at our infrastructure as already being in second-rate condition. So if you want to call that a disaster, why not put, throw some money at that? I don't see, I think uh, uh, Speaker Pelosi referred to possibly using uh, a tax of some kind or using a carbon tax. Um, those things really uh, don't 
I don't think are going to sell. Uh, I also think the backlog figure for the core is vastly overstated, but the fact is the need is great, and we ought to all agree on that. Where we don't have, what we don't have in this country is leadership. People who are really willing to go out and say, yes, we need to have first-rate infrastructure, including water resources. The president made a huge deal about putting together an infrastructure package when he got elected. Then he lost interest. I'm delighted to hear the announcement that came out today that said that uh, he would be meeting with the, uh, the, the leaders of the Democrats to discuss infrastructure. Maybe that means something. Uh, Dan, you wrote uh, in the last water log about the cost of disasters. You know, give us an idea of what that is. Yeah, so disasters, as we know, are expensive. And not just millions, we're actually ranking and, and recording the number of $1 billion disasters now. So the total for 2018 came to about just shy of $100 billion. But that's not a record. Actually, it was three times that the year before. In 2017, there were 16 events that cost more than $1 billion each. The number of billion-dollar weather, weather events actually doubled in the past recent years, with science correlate directly uh, with climate change. So in short, essentially what's happening is climate change, and it's having more of an impact than scientists had originally predicted. What a surprise. Um, other than throwing trillions of dollars post-disaster, neither, neither Congress nor the President have demonstrated the leadership uh, that our nation really needs. Um, so moving on from that, we have a lot to talk about with WERDA. The recent guidance came out uh, about the WERDA 18 provisions. Howard, do you want to talk about that in some more detail? Surely. Uh, core guidance is the same thing as other agencies issuing uh, regulations, except in this case there's no notice and opportunity for public comment. They just publish it. Uh, let's go over some of the big ones. Um, for those of you following and have your copy of WERDA 18 in front of you, there might be one of you out there. We don't have it open in front of us right now. We've got this guidance and, and some more information on WERDA on, in the bulletin section. On uh, It's just the left left sidebar on waterlog, so feel free to go oh, there. That's cool. Well, put us on pause for a moment on the podcast and go right to our website and follow. Uh, section 1148, the beneficial use of sediment or regional sediment management. Well, under Section 204 Continuing Authorities Program that Dan referred to just a little while ago, the Bright Lights at Corps headquarters said that any beneficial placement of sand on the shoreline would require a permanent easement, even though the sand would only last there for very, 10 years at the very most. Now, obviously, homeowners are really not that anxious to grant public access once the taxpayer-funded sand was gone. Actually, they have to grant even more than public access. They're supposed to maintain the property, uh, the sand, somehow you know, in, in the same condition with that access. So Senator Ed Markey of Massachusetts proposed a provision that would relate the length of the public access easement to the time before the bulk of the sand washed away. But the provision got messed up badly by the congressional sausage maker, and the bottom line is there's no change. So if you want right now to make use of beneficial use, you have to provide uh, a permanent easement. That means ad infinitum, whatever number of years you want to think of, it is that number of years. If it's changed property owners, that easement transfers with the property uh, the, to the new property owner. Hopefully all this will get correct in the next word. Moving on to section 1160, how much restoration can you get 
when you have a public law 8499 FCCE, otherwise known as disaster funding. Well, this is another one where Congress and, uh, has worked to make things ever more less clear. The short answer to the question that I asked is in the guidance issued for this section, the Corps will rebuild your beach project to its design template. Underline those words because there is a separate regulation as to what design template means. But unfortunately, the short answer to that is, that is the beach design without any sacrificial sand. So the day the dredge leaves, it could be, uh, the design template could be broken by the next day and you're gonna to have to be asking the Corps to come back to do more uh, nourishment, which is not gonna happen because you don't have any more funds out of the uh, emergency funding. So the guidance says you can ask your local core district to uh, provide, uh, to go to the pre-storm condition. That used to be the standard for what happened when you needed public law 8499 money. When you got that money, they put it back to the pre-storm condition. Well, uh, saving money and being stupid at the same time, uh, the, the core has figured out how, a new process that says you, you, you have to do a mother may I to get back to your pre-storm condition. And I'd like to add that when we talk about the issue of a dredge coming back, dredge mobilizations, just to put the equipment there, can cost anywhere from 10% to up to 60% of a project's cost. So it's, it's several million dollars to mobilize a dredge. So bringing, you know, bringing it back is, an ex is a big expense, and you don't want to do it just for a small amount of sand. So if the dredge is already there and there's sand available, it's best to make, make use of any available funds to get that beach uh, restored to the, uh, to the pre-storm condition, if that's possible. You know, for a while we had Congress actually trying to get it, trying to do something smart with this and saying, well, if the Corps can restore, actually re-nourish at the same time as it is restoring to pre-storm conditions, let's do that because if the re-nourishment is coming up a couple of years from now, why not do it now? Certainly if it's coming up next year, you know, give the, give the Corps that authority. But, Congress has made it worse, and the Corps has taken the opportunity to save money. Now to the next section, if you're reading 11, uh, section 1153, construction of projects by non-federal interests. So the guidance basically says this, if Congress has authorized construction of a water resources project and the non-federal interest, that's the state or local government, that's the partner on this, wants to proceed with construction of that project on its own, this guidance sets out the rules for applying for permits, NEPA compliance, a lot of other matters. It's very helpful. Uh, these days, uh, there's a lot of interest in getting anybody but the federal government to pay for things. So if you want to go ahead and do this, go for it through a Section 1153. Section 1161 has two subsections. 1161B I want to talk about first cost and benefit feasibility assessment. This allows the federal sponsor to pay the court to repair, restore a project that is either, now they've created two separate categories, flood risk management or coastal storm risk management. We're part of the same business line. I have no idea why they created those two categories, but it's in the guidance. But if you want to restore a project whose costs exceed its remaining benefits, remaining is my word, 
costs exceed its benefit as long as the non-federal interest pays for the excess costs, go right ahead and do it. Now, there's a recurring theme going on here, and we'll get back to it in a moment. The Corps is finding ways not to spend federal money. That's a, a problem that's going on. 1161A, this part of the guidance states that those projects, coastal storm risk project, otherwise it's beach nourishment projects, that are going through a Section 1037 process, uh, you know who you are. You're coming up on your 50-year renewal, you're going through that 15-year renewal process. These projects are actually remain eligible for funding uh, for renourishment all the way now through sex, uh, September 30th of 2022. I wonder if anybody out there among our uh, our listeners has, uh, have, has a project that is finding that it's busting through its spending cap in doing that. Every project has a spending cap. If you have any questions about that, let us know. Section 1166, advanced funds. Once again, the Corps has rescinded its previous invite, uh, uh, guidance on this, ER 1165-2-30. Yes, you can find that on the Waterlog website. And provides new procedures related to non-federal sponsors who want to advance or contribute funds. It also states that the Corps, now I'm quoting these next few words, shall ensure to the maximum extent practical, end of quotes, that advancing or contributing funds does not provide an unfair advantage compared to those who simply wait for federal funds. So I, I would say be careful about this because the Congress is providing increased opportunities for those communities who are wealthy enough to be able to advance and get perhaps to the head of the line. Congress has said, don't want to have an unfair advantage, but to the maximum extent practical, the Corps is going to assure that. Section 1115, property acquisition. This section of Ward 18 required the Corps to consider, quote, the minimum interest in real property, unquote, necessary to support the project. The guidance states the Corps is already doing that. So to my interpretation of that, Dan, you know, the, the, the Corps, the Congress tries to do things, writing words that look good in a press release, but really have no real teeth. Obviously, you said before, we can get copies of those guidance, uh, any guidance for the Corps that issues uh, on our website. So in addition to the Ward to the Ward 18 guidance, you also posted a uh, blog uh, that addressed the lack of funding for the Corps, and you stated that that was part of a more serious problem. Go ahead and tell our listeners what the real problems are. You can uh, look at the full blog, because I think it says, you know, core funding is only one part of a more serious problem. But what's happening here is the core gets $6 billion a year, plus or minus a few million, 100 million. And I know that most of us millions mean a lot of money, but uh, 100 million can be consumed in one project alone in terms of some flood risk management projects and levies and, uh, and the like. So the Corps is, you know, constantly accused of having this, you know, backlog that we referred to before. But the $6 billion is about the same as the, we were asking for 10 billion dollars, 10, 10 years ago, rather, to, that the Corps needed. There was a water resources coalition at that time. And it said, together, all of our groups, coastal, inland, all of them, said uh, 
six billion was a minimum, seven billion was more likely. So we're, we're 10 years behind. So the issue here is that water resources are not really prioritized terribly well. We're not investing. Certainly along the coast, there's no way, there's a limited investment in resilience to rising seas and raging storms. We treat uh, post-storm uh, repair, like we've talked about earlier in the podcast, just simply as a cost of uh, doing business. The Corps' investigations budget, which is the way we look at not only new projects, but we investigate existing projects to see if we can make them better. Can we build the dunes higher? Can we add dunes to projects that were built early on when dunes were not part of projects? Those, those, that budget is ridiculously small. It's also just so easy for members of Congress to declare victory because they got a provision included in the latest WERDA or some project somewhere in their state or district got funded. But it's a lot harder to look at the reality of the needs that are not being met by the inadequate funding that's going on there. Congress is doing its best to plus up the Corps' budget. Don't put this all on Congress. The fact of the matter is that between the administration and the public in general, the water resource community, we're just really dealing with uh, an inadequate budget. And I'll get to one more detail here. The doing things project by project is the way we did things in the 19th century. Water resources started as a congressional issue because of flooding. Oh, actually because of navigation. We needed to get from one place to another, commerce-wise primarily. Then flooding came along as the next uh, issue they could converse in. So if you look at the early uh, WERDA-like bills that were passed, they were either flood control or they were river bills. Now we have the need for coastal resilience and there's absolutely no vehicle to do that. There's no interest in putting the resources that we put into doing uh, navigation and doing uh, flood uh, risk management. We have to be able to get um, into that right now and you can't do it project by project. You have to have a programmatic approach and not just one project or one year at a time, it's gotta be multi-year. People have gotta start speaking up about that. So I know that there are folks out there who are listening who have a project, but there are folks out there who have needs in communities. You're not gonna be met, they're not gonna be met by this current system. So take a look at the blog, it's on the Waterlog website. We've got all the blogs that we've done in Waterlog up there. That's what's going on. It's a bit like driving on a flat tire, isn't it? Uh, yes, I think that's the picture that we have. <laughs> I call that you put up there. That's great. So we want to finish, uh, finish off here with two important stories. Uh, for those of you who hadn't, or if you're following Coastal News today, then you may have already read this. Uh, I saw it in their, in their daily blast. Hurricane Michael was recently upgraded to a Category 5. The winds were previously recorded at 155 miles an hour, but were estimated were to have really been pushing 160 miles an hour due to the extraordinary low pressure that the storm produced. Now, the tipping point between a Cat 4 and a Cat 5 is 157, mile an hour, 157 miles per hour. Uh, and, and so a qualifier like that, like a difference of 5 miles an hour, doesn't seem like much, but the energy of the storm was great enough to be considered a Cat 5. Last season, NOAA's Climate Prediction Center estimated a 75% chance that the 2018 Atlantic hurricane season would be near or above normal. You know, they weren't wrong. 
Researchers from Colorado State are now predicting a slightly below average Atlantic hurricane season in 2019, citing the cause as a weak El Nino year. NOAA will release its forecast on May 23rd, so stay tuned for that. Our second story is an interesting one, and this one takes place actually in the, in the, uh, in the Caribbean. In 2005, Mexico's Caribbean coast was struck by two hurricanes, both totaling $8 billion in damages, shutting down hotels, businesses, and other critical infrastructure in Cancun long enough to cause further economic impact. Meanwhile, there were actually a few hotels and beaches in Puerto Morelos that suffered less damages than other areas. That's because they were protected by an intact stretch of the American, uh, of the Mesoamerican coral reef system, which is the longest barrier reef in the Western Hemisphere. Now, according to scientists, a healthy coral reef can produce uh, it can reduce up to 97% of a wave's energy before it hits the shore. Uh, this is similar to a living shoreline, except this is a huge system that's offshore. Um, and here's the interesting part. A partnership between Swiss Re and the Nature Conservancy will actually insure the reef against future damages. What they're going to do is take tourism taxes and other government revenue sources, and they're going to collect them in a trust fund to help finance premiums for reef insurance under, uh, if it were to be damaged during a hurricane uh, or other sort of storm. Because that reef is extremely important to their economy. Uh, people come visit it for tourism. It, it prevents storm surges. It reduces uh, wave energy. So it's interesting to see that that's a true natural solution. Yeah. And, and I think uh, it's also an example of the private sector uh, stepping up to the plate because they realize what's at risk for them. We have so many coastal communities, people listening, saying, well, I, I sure wish they would invest in uh, renourishing our beach or something like that. Well, the issue of alternative finance is one that we'll be talking more about in, in future podcasts. But I think given the fact that the Fed's really don't have the money to invest in coastal resilience, we're going to be looking at the private sector for more of the funding. And we're going to be, as I said, talking more about that. There's going to be a lot more resources coming out on Waterlog. Uh, I know I have a financing resilience piece that I'm going to be putting out in the next few weeks. Cool. We've also been taking a look at doing some webinars uh, with some people from the finance industry to really uh, bring you guys in and, and see what's available on the market. because. Uh, it's, it's forward-looking and it's covering a lot of the things that we thought were previously impossible, like having a private finance uh, fund coastal resilience. Anybody listening has any examples of where anybody from a, a bank to a large corporation has invested in a water resource project, we'd love to hear about it. And we'd be happy to uh, you know, mention it here on the next podcast. We cover a lot today in today's episode of uh, Waterlog. You can find out more about each of the topics we discussed by going to www.waterlog.net and read the latest blogs and email updates that are there. And better yet, subscribe. You'll find subscription opportunities there, right there on the main page. Subscribe, they come right into your box and you get the latest news, particularly with the email updates, blast updates that Dan does. Thanks very much for listening to our podcast today. Until next time, it's Howard Marlowe and Dan Janoffi saying goodbye. Thanks very much. <laughs>